Well, we appreciate Colin's story, his testimony. What's your story? What's your testimony? You know, if you don't have a story yet that intersects with the story of Christ, because the Lord Jesus wants you, all of us, to be a part of his story. And it's a beautiful story. It's a love story. It's a story of love, grace, forgiveness, redemption, and power. You can have. That can be a part of your story, too. And so uh, we're a church that is invested in helping people's stories be intersected with Christ. Hey, uh, praise report. Last night we had several people, a dozen people, who made a public profession of their faith in Christ through the waters of baptism. And we're so thankful. You know, water baptism doesn't save you. Faith alone in Christ alone is what saves you. But once you're saved... You make a public profession of that by identifying with Jesus in his death when you go under the water, burial, and then resurrection when you come up out of the water. It's such a beautiful, beautiful picture of our salvation and the cleansing power of the blood of Christ. And so 12 people made that public profession of faith. And so let's just thank God for them. Can we do that? And if you've given your life to Christ and you've not yet been water baptized, my friend, it is a command in Scripture. Uh, it is something that you have to do, and it's a beautiful, beautiful moment in your life that you can share with your loved ones and your family members, and we would love to be a part of that. We'll have one coming up in the future, and you can, uh, you can be a part of it. I want to welcome, once again, those that are watching online. We're studying our studies in the book of Acts, and we're going to finish the 14th chapter of the book of Acts, and uh, we're going to kind of go old school on you. There's some old school truths that surface out of the verses that we're going to be studying together today. And I was thinking about old school, and, and I remember when you were able to go to a public bathroom back in the good old days, and you could actually turn the water faucet on by yourself and keep it on as long as you needed it on. The soap dispensers actually gave you, they, were, they weren't mechanical, weren't, they, weren't, they didn't have a sensor, they weren't, you know, some little miniature robot, you could actually get as much soap as you needed. And then when you wanted to dry your hands, you would go to this uh, towel dispenser. It actually had 100% cotton towel inside, and you would jerk it down till it was clean, and then you'd wipe, and it would completely dry your hands. So people wouldn't leave a residue on the door handle as you're walking out. It's all wet and greasy, like, ugh. Matter of fact, you should never touch the door of the bathroom when you wash your hands. Get a piece of toilet paper, get a paper towel, use the edge of your shirt, or just sit there and wait till somebody else walks through, and then walk through right away. That's how you keep your hands clean. Amen. Nowadays, though, you know, everything's a sensor. You go in there, and you put your hand on a little, a little soap dispenser, and it has to recognize your hands there. And sometimes you're like this. And then you smack it, and then it gives you a, little, a, a tiny little bit of, of soap. Really? It takes like four or five times. And then you go to the, the fountain, you know, the, the faucet there, and it's supposed to sense that your hand is now under it. And sometimes it's like you're praying to God or something, <laughs> making an offering, because you're doing this and nothing's happening. And then you say, it's not, I guess it's not working. These things aren't smart enough to let you know it's not working. And then you go to another one, and then the water comes out. And then it stops. Like, really? It, off and on, I'm like, oh, the guy's behind you waiting. Like, I'm like, I'm trying, man. These things aren't cooperating. And then you go to the paper towel dispenser, and it has a little green light, which means I guess it's ready to go. And you put your hand under it, and nothing happens. You wave it. You look like a karate expert eventually, you know, doing all this stuff. Finally, it comes out. It's old school, you know, just the old, good old days when the water would turn on and off because you did it, and soap would come out in a generous amount. Well, Paul goes old school here in Acts uh, Chapter 14, actually Luke is, Dr. Luke is writing as he's inspired of the Holy Spirit, telling about this 
first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul and his team. And so, remember, uh, last week we, we, we let off, you know, if you're not dead, you're not done. And they stoned Paul because uh, a guy got healed. They thought he was a god, and they, he wasn't a god. And, and uh, their minds were poisoned, and their hearts turned. And anyway, Paul was left for dead, but he got up, went to the next city. We're going to pick up now right where we left off, Acts chapter 14, beginning in verse 21. After preaching the good news in Derby and making many disciples, not a few, many disciples, Paul and Barnabas returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch of Pisidia, where they strengthened the believers. They encouraged them to continue, continue in the faith, reminding them that we must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Paul and Barnabas also appointed elders. That's interesting. They appointed elders in every church. With prayer and fasting, they turned the elders over to the care of the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Then they traveled back through Pisidia to Pamphylia. They preached uh, the word in Persia, then went down to Italia. Finally, they returned by ship to Antioch of Syria, where all this started, where their journey had begun, Acts 13. The believers there had entrusted them to the grace of God and to do the work they had now completed. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the powerful worship, ministry of prayer, and thank you for the ministry of the Word. That God, this is not just another sermon. This is a message for our life that will be a part of our life from this day forward. That your Word will find a home in our hearts, and it will be a seed planted in good soil that will, will produce crops, some 30, 60, 100 fold. I pray and ask this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. In the, the section of scripture that we read, there are what I call four pillars of our faith. Four pillars of our faith. The first one is making disciples. In verse 21, it said, after preaching the good news in Derby and making many disciples. Every church that's Christ-centered and biblically based should be in the kingdom business, the business of making disciples. Not just making a decision for Christ. So many churches throughout our country today and around the world, basically, are filled with so many professing Christians. They made a decision to follow Christ. But are they true, heartfelt, fervent, devoted, committed, on fire followers of Jesus Christ? Are they disciples of Christ? One of the famous verses in the Bible... Two, two verses in the Bible. Many of you are familiar with it. John chapter 8, verse 31. Here's what Jesus said. Jesus said to the people who believed in him, back then and now, because we all believe in him, you are truly my disciples. Notice that phrase, that term that's used by Jesus. You are truly my disciples if, there's 1,522 ifs in the authorized version of the Bible. It's all based on a condition. Here's the condition. If you remain faithful to my teachings, not the teachings of your denomination, not the teachings of your church, not the teachings of your religion that you may have been raised in, unless your religion, church, or denomination teaches what Christ taught. We must be faithful to the teachings of Jesus. And then what will happen? Then you'll know the truth, and that truth will set you free. So what does it mean to be a disciple? Well, a disciple is an apprentice. A disciple is basically a learner. The term disciple comes from, to us in the English form from the Latin root, which means a pupil, a learner. Uh, the term rarely shows up, I think only two or three times in the Old Testament. It's found in 1 Chronicles 25, 8, if you want to take notes, and uh, Isaiah chapter 8, verse 16. 
The Greek word that's used in the Greek New Testament uh, of the Holy Scriptures, it refers to an adherent, a particular teacher or religious philosophical school. So you are an adherent, you're a follower of a particular teacher or religious philosopher, and you're a part of their school. Basically, you're under their tutelage. So Jesus was a rabbi, and he had the 12 apostles. They were his apostles, but they were also his disciples. Luke 10 tells us that there were 70 disciples that he sent out. So he had only 12 apostles, but he had many disciples, many students, many individuals that were under his training to become more like their master. That's what it means to be a disciple of someone, that they are your master teacher and you're wanting to become like them. So what does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? It's more than simply making a decision to follow Christ. It means you're more than a fan, you're a follower. You know, there's a difference in being, making a decision to follow Christ and being a true disciple of Christ. It's like the difference between being a fan of mixed martial arts and actually being uh, jumping in the octagon and getting in a bloody fist fight. There's a world of difference, and the church is filled with so many fans for Christ, but yet Christianity is not a spectator sport. It's, a, it's an active relationship that we live out day to day uh, in a heartfelt way because, well, we're crazy about Jesus. We, we love Christ. So I'm going to go old school on you today, as I already warned you in this message, and I'm going to quote from a guy, one of the greatest, most prolific, prophetic writers in all of Christianity. He's gone on to be with the Lord now many years. But if you have never read from this individual, you need to do yourself a favor. You need to treat yourself to reading some of A.W. Tozier's writings. Here's what he said. He said, in every Christian's heart, there's a cross and a throne. And the Christian is on the throne till he puts himself on the cross. If he refuses the cross, he remains on the throne. The question for all of us today is, who is seated on the throne of your heart? To be a true follower of Christ, to be a true disciple of Christ, means Christ is seated on the throne of your heart. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It means we're in love with him, and out of love, not out of fear, we take up our cross daily. Sometimes it's a cross of shame, or it's a cross of misunderstanding. And we take that cross, and we follow him. We follow in the footsteps of Jesus every day of our life. That's what it means to be a disciple. Now, A.W. Tozier goes on to say this, and I'm quoting. Perhaps this is at the bottom of the backsliding and the worldliness among gospel believers today. We want to be saved, but we insist that Christ do all the dying. No cross for us, no dethronement, no dying. We remain king within the little kingdom of man's soul and wear our tinsel crown with the pride of a Caesar. But we doom ourselves to shadows and weakness and spiritual sterility. I mean, that's some good writing right there. I mean, let's just give A.W. Tozier a hand. Let's just take a moment and say, wow, that's some potent stuff. Powerful, powerful stuff. You know, uh, circulating for the last couple of decades, and perhaps you've heard this before, is a lengthy description of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. So indulge me for a, a moment here. I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I've stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of Christ. I am a disciple of Christ and will not look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. I am a disciple of Christ. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future 
is secure. I am a disciple of Christ who is finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, pain vision, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarf goals. I am a disciple of Christ and no longer need preeminence, praise, or popularity. I am a disciple of Christ and do not have to be first, top, recognized, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith. I am a disciple of Christ. And lean on Christ's presence. Walk by faith. Aim, uplifted by prayer. And I labor by his power because I am a disciple of Christ. My faith is fixed. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is rough. I am a disciple of Christ. My companions are few. My guide is reliable. My mission is clear. I am a disciple of Christ. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed, for I am a disciple of Christ. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of the adversaries, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I am a disciple of Christ and will not give up, shut up, or let up until I've stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, taught up for the cause of Christ. For I am a disciple of Christ and must go until he comes, give until I drop, teach until all know, and work until he stops me. When Christ comes for his own, I will have no problem. He will have no problem recognizing me for my title will be clear. Say it with me. I am a disciple of Christ. Let's give him praise and glory. Woo! That's the difference between a fan of Jesus and a follower of Jesus. You see, the early church knew something. They discovered something. Even though the church 2,000 years ago was birthed, was born in a time of great darkness, spiritual darkness and paganism, and yet the church in a matter of a generation was able to sweep the known world at that time, the gospel of Christ. Why? Well, perhaps the secret is found in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and it says, and they, those disciples continued, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. That means they were in the temple and in house to house regularly, in the temple on the Lord's Day, hearing the teaching from the, from the apostles. Uh, they were in Bible studies together. They were learning the doctrines of Christ and the doctrines of his holy church. And they were in fellowship with one another. They came together for fellowship, and they broke bread. Many say that that Reference is not a potluck, which many churches are famous for, as much as communion. They broke bread, the Lord's body. They partook of the Lord's body together and in prayers. This was the pattern of the early church. This is what allowed them to be the, 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 the brand of, of early Christians that were literally on fire and set the world ablaze. They were truly disciples. As a church, we're in the business of making disciples. It's not just about making a decision for Christ. It might, everything might start there, yes. But to be a, a true, devoted, wholehearted, fervent follower of Christ in all of your life, that, that you're no longer on the throne. You're no longer behind the, the, the driver's wheel. Christ is now in charge of your life. He's now Lord. That means he's boss. Uh, we no longer make decisions independently of, of the teachings of Jesus. We no longer make decisions independent of, of the Spirit of God and the wisdom of God and the voice of God in our life. Why? Because we're crazy about Christ. We love him. We genuinely are his followers. We are his disciples. The second pillar of our faith is we have to continue in the faith, a continuation. As it says in verse 22, the latter part, it says they encouraged them. Paul and his ministry team encouraged every Christian they came across. They encouraged them to continue in the faith. Why? Because you could stop if you want. 
You've got to continue. How many people do you know? I know so many people. In almost 40 years I've been walking with Jesus. Friends, family members, church members that at one time were in the faith and serving Christ and on fire and involved in the work of God and going to church and loving Jesus. And now where are they? They're nowhere to be found. They're back in the world. They've lost interest. They've lost sight of Christ. And unfortunately, they're no longer living for him. They did not continue in the faith. We need encouragement to continue. Really, in anything in life, you need encouragement to continue. You need encouragement to continue in your marriage when your marriage hits a rough spot now and then. You need to continue to be encouraged as a parent in in raising those children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. You need encouragement to continue in your business and in your line of work, in your educational pursuits, in in your financial, spiritual, relational goals. We all need encouragement. We all need people in our lives that will encourage us. And that's what Paul and this ministry team, everywhere they went, they encouraged these disciples to continue in the faith, reminding them, (laughs) reminding them that we must suffer many hardships before we enter the kingdom of God. And that's why we, we need so much encouragement. We need support, the support of others. I hope you have people in your life that support you. I hope you have people in your life. I hope you're married to someone that doesn't spend most of the time discouraging you, but encouraging you. Wives, encourage your husbands. Husbands, encourage your wives. Parents, encourage your children. Children, teenagers, be, in, be a source of encouragement. You don't know the battles that your parents or your, your, parents, your parent has to, has to fight in, in order to, to make ends meet, in order to, to make a living, put a roof over your head. And so pray for your parents and, and encourage them. You should show up to work and everyone else is discouraged and everyone else is moaning and groaning. I hate my job. Eh, well, you love that paycheck, don't you? You never complain about that, cashing that paycheck, right? You, don't, you never complain about what that paycheck does for you, amen? So you should go to work and you shouldn't be the one always moaning and groaning. You should be at work and encouraging everyone around you. You should be a beacon of light and a, and a beacon of hope because we live in a world filled with such discouragement. So many people are discouraged. Why do you think that suicide is now the 10th leading cause in this nation? That the suicide amongst military personnel is the highest it's ever been. And it were brought to the awareness of this when, when powerful, influential people, as what has recently happened, have hung themselves and killed themselves. And once again, it comes to the forefront. It's not just a battle with mental, mental health. It's, it's not simply... We, we, we try to take a very complex situation and we try to oversimplify it by simply saying, give people more drugs. Or it's solely a mental health crisis. It's not solely a mental health crisis. And what people don't need necessarily are more drugs. What we need is we need the void in our heart to be filled by a loving God and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We need hope, we need meaning, and we need purpose. We need people in our life that will, when we are discouraged, when we're going through a battle, when it seems like all have forsaken us and all have betrayed us and all have left us, we need somebody that will encourage us. You know, I'm going to go once again old school on you, and many of you are familiar with Frank Sinatra. Um, Frank Sinatra was, was referred to as Blue Eyes. One of his nicknames was the chairman of the board. But his daughter, Tina Sinatra, in her biography of her father, she paid her father one of the greatest compliments that anyone could ever pay you. She said this about her father. She said, my dad was like a campfire, the point where we gathered and felt warm around him. He had such a big presence, and when he was with you, he was really with you. You know, one of the greatest compliments somebody could ever pay you, whether it's a spouse, a child, a friend, a church member, a coworker, one of the greatest compliments somebody could ever pay you is this, you've always been there for me. 
thank you. In my hour of need, you were there. That's, that's like a highlight. That's like one of the most beautiful things someone could ever say about you. And the flip side of that, one of the most hurtful things, one of the most painful things someone could ever say to you is this, you weren't there for me. I hope no one's ever said that to you, mom, dad, brother, sister, friend, Christian, co-worker. I hope no one's ever said that to you, teacher, coach, pastor, priest. But if they have, well, ask God to forgive you. Maybe ask that person. Tell them, I'm sorry I wasn't there for you when you needed me. I'm, ta- I'm sorry I walked out on you. I'm sorry that I wasn't there when you needed me the most. Please forgive me. They may or may not, but that's the right thing to do. And then, I, I, I heap no guilt or condemnation on you. But then, spend the rest of your life living to be an encouragement to others. And for the meaningful people in your life, you should always be the one they can count on. Come hell or high water, as they say. When the chips are down and the going gets tough, they can look to you. They can count on you because you will be there for them. Aren't you thankful we serve a God that's always there for us? But the sad reality is sometimes people aren't there for us. They may mean to be there for us, but they're flawed human beings like the rest of us. And when we need them, they're not there. But I'm here to tell you, in your hour of need, the dark soul of your night, you can count on a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And his name is Jesus. He promised he would never leave you. He would never forsake you. He'd be with you always. Now, one of the greatest stories of encouragement is found in 1 Samuel chapter 30. Many of you are familiar with the story. Sometimes people around you aren't able or willing to encourage you. You need to then encourage yourself in the Lord. 1 Samuel 30, you know, David and his men went out on some raids, and they came back in Ziklag, and the enemy came in, and the enemy took all their wives and children and all their, all their wealth and all their possessions. These 400 mighty men of David, along with David, they were so distraught, they were so discouraged, they were weeping and crying out to God, and it got so bad, the men thought of stoning David, killing David their leader, because they felt that he had failed them. Well, there was no one around to encourage David. So verse 6 says, so David encouraged himself in the Lord. That's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. 1 Samuel 30, verse 6. So David encouraged himself in the Lord. You know, sometimes you're down and out, and maybe the people in your life aren't able to encourage you because maybe they're going through a battle themselves. But I want you to know you can learn how to encourage yourself, how to build yourself up in the Lord, because he's always there for you. You know, some of the greatest sermons I've ever preached have not been at this church. They've been in my own quiet, personal quiet time when I preach to myself. Carl, why are you thinking this way? Carl, why are you believing this way? Carl, why? You know, that's not what the Bible says. I know. And I've got to repent before the Lord. Those are some of my best sermons. You know, some of David's best speeches, some of your best talks are not the talks that you've given, you know, as a business leader or as a, as a business owner or as a teacher or coach. Some of the best talks you've given are to yourself. When you talk yourself out of despair, you talk yourself out of doubt, you talk yourself out of depression, you talk yourself out of that hopeless gloom and doom. Let me tell you something, there's always tomorrow, and the sun always will outshine the storms of life. You're going to make it. Weeping may endure for the night, but the Bible says joy comes in the morning. So you know what David did? He, He did three things. He actually called Abathar the priest to come and help him. And these are the three things we can do. 
when we want to encourage ourselves in the Lord, we have a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the Father where he ever liveth to make intercession for us. The second thing David did is he asked the priest to bring the ephod. It was through the ephod that David would be able to inquire of the Lord. Our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, he gives us the holy ephod of the word of God. He gives us his Holy Spirit. And then the third thing David did, he prayed. He inquired of the Lord. He said, Lord... Should I pursue? <laughs> and one of the most famous verses in the Bible, God said this to David, pursue, overtake, and recover all. And David stood up before his men and said, I've heard from heaven. God is for us and not against us. The same God that anointed me to defeat the giant is the same God upon me to go and defeat this enemy. Who's going with me? And about 200 men said, we're too tired. They, they were real, literally fatigued. 200 men said, we'll go with you. So David and those 200 men, they traveled mile after mile after mile until they found the enemy, they overtook the enemy, they defeated the enemy, and they brought back all their wives and all their kids and all their wealth back. Amen. Maybe the enemy's taking everything from you. Don't quit. Listen, my friend. Anyone can quit. That's the easy way out. But don't quit. Anytime that thought enters your mind, end it all. That thought comes from hell itself. Banish it back to the abyss from whence it came. Anathema the thought, curse be the thought. You're not quitting because God's not quitting on you. I don't know how, I don't know when, but I know at some point in time you will make it. But what we don't like is the suffering part, huh? We must. Paul said we must. We must go through hardships. We must. You know what parenting is all about? <laughs> parenting is about not, not teaching the maybes of life, but the musts of life. You know, when, when our kids were small, we had non-negotiables. You must brush your teeth at least twice a day. No if hands are, you're going to brush. I don't, my, they're not dirty. Yes, they are. You must. The must of life. Our kids never ask, Dad, can we go to school? No, you, you're going to school, period. You must as a matter of fact, the way we raised our kids, unlike how Gloria and I were particularly raised, we told them, you must go to college. You must. I don't care. You're going. Yeah, well, yeah. no, you're going. There's no, there's no negotiation. You want to remain my son? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> you, then you're going to go to college. I want to take a year off. No, you're not going to take no year off. Now, I'm not judging you if you've done that. But a lot of times you take the, a year's two, five, 10, 20. You know what I'm talking about? The must of life. We told our kids, you know, Gloria and I were in agreement, they must go to children's church. They must. They must. We want them to learn at their level of learning. We told our kids when they were teenagers, you must go to youth group. We don't want to, I don't care if you want to go or not, you're going. So put a smile on that face. That's, that's not good parenting. You should let them decide. Do you let them decide whether they are going to get a driver's license before they start driving? Do you let them decide if they're sick, whether they're going to go to, you're sick, do you want to go to the doctor? No, okay, you don't have to. No, 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 there's just some things in life. Kids aren't smart enough yet, really until they're about 30. <laughs> they're not smart enough to make certain decisions. Uh, did he just call me dumb? No, I love millennials. I don't understand you very well, but I love you. Believe me, I do love you. Please keep coming. I can help you. Eventually, I'll help you. <laughs> the Lord can help you. The must of life. And Paul said, here's one of the musts of life. You must suffer hardship. Now, I'm going to have a special Father's Day message next weekend, but part of that message, I'm going to give you a little peek preview right now. There's what's called the school of suffering, and there are some lessons in life you'll never learn unless you suffer. 
So one of the important things about being a parent is you can't always spare your kids from suffering. That teacher was mean to you, we're going to go to a different school. That church was mean, we're going to go to a different church. That city's mean to you, let's move to a different city. Parents are always trying to shelter their kids from suffering and discomfort. Moms, dads, you can't do that. Even if you try, even if you do your best to shelter them from any type of suffering, when they grow up, and they eventually will, and you have to go to a judge to kick your son out of the basement like was in the news recently. The son was suing his parents because he's 30 and wanted to still live at home. They're like, we're tired of you, man. Go get a job, you bum, right? But no, seriously, I don't know why I'm having so much fun with you in this service. <laughs> you must be in a fun mood. You're bringing the fun out of me. But anyway, <laughs> when your kids do eventually grow up and they move out of the house, they're going to face some real hard times. And they won't be ready if every time hardship came their way, you were there to step in and, and to try to prevent that, that discomfort in their life. Listen, we don't like hardship. We like cruise ships. <laughs> See, if I, said, if I said, hey, in the foyer, we want to sign up couples. You've got to be married. So if you're not married, hurry up, get married. Find somebody, whatever. Let's go. I'd like to go next year or the year after on a couple's cruise ship. And if I said, you know what, today we have sign-ups in the foyer for those who would like to go on a couple's cruise ship, go, we'd have lines of people. But if I had a table next to it and those that want to sign up for hardships, <laughs> get in that line. There'd be nobody in the hardship line. Everybody would be in the cruise, <laughs> cruise ship line. And yet Paul said we must, through much hardships, enter the kingdom of God. That's why we need encouragement. And if others aren't encouraging you, if others aren't there for you when you need them the most, I'm sorry, the Lord will always be there for you. The third thing we need to do is we need to raise up leaders. Now, this is not going to put goosebumps on you and make you like, wow, what a, great, what a great deep spiritual truth, Pastor Carl. But once again, verse 23, and this is in a different translation, it says, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, in every church, Paul and Titus 1.5, Paul said, Titus, appoint elders in every church. Here again, appoint elders in every church. With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now, there are some spiritual gifts in the Bible, spiritual offices, such as a deacon. We talked about deacons when we were in the sixth chapter of the book of Acts, and the word deacon in the Greek language means servant. Deacons are an important ministry in every local church. Deacons can, and they can also be women, deaconesses. A deaconess, Phoebe, is a deaconess mentioned in the Bible. The ministry of a deacon is the ministry of serving, a servant's heart, to serve and to serve in the people and to serve ministries, even from serving tables to serving food. Uh, as it talks about there in Acts chapter 6. And they're the backbone of every church. I'm so deeply grateful for all the men and their wives that serve as deacons here at Trinity Church. Some have done it for decades. We have about close to 30, 30 men who uh, they go through a, a, a process to become a deacon because there are certain qualifications that you have to meet according to the word of God to be a deacon. But a deacon's different from an elder. The Greek word for elder means overseer. An elder is someone that gives oversight. The Greek word uh, is the same word that's used for a bishop or, or, an el or a pastor. So elders have a servant's heart and serve like deacons, but they have a different spiritual responsibility. They're to give oversight. You see, the way our church works, and the way it's, it's a biblical model, by the way, we are an elder-governed, senior pastor-led, staff-run congregation. What does that mean? Well, ultimately, that means that I am accountable ultimately to God, but my spiritual covering is to the board of elders. I am a, a chief among equals. I 
am the chairman of the board of elders. Because you see, in every, in every, in every nonprofit, 501c3 nonprofit organization, you have to register with that state that you're living in. So you have articles of incorporation. In those articles of incorporation, you have officers. They are the legal officers of that entity, of that organization. Everything has to be done above board and blameless. It can't be hodgepodge. It can't be under the table. It, it has to be transparent. It has to be ethical. And it has to be legal. But most importantly, it has to be biblical and spiritual. So we have officers that can buy land, sell land, take out a note, borrow money, and it's all done legally, and it's the board of elders. They're the ones that can hire or fire the senior pastor. The senior pastor hires, fires, sets salaries for the rest of the staff, but even the senior pastor, who is the CEO and president of the organization, which I am, I am responsible to the elders, and it should be that way. There should be a spiritual covering because that's protection for me, and it's also protection for this congregation. God forbid that I should get off doctrinally and get into error. God forbid that I should commit a crime and be convicted. God forbid that I should have a moral failure. But if any of those things happen, you need to have overseers that are able to step in and not only protect the pastor, sometimes you and I need protection from ourselves, but that they're also there as overseers to protect the congregation, to protect you, to make sure that Christ is continually continued to be glorified and to be the head of this church. Now, why is all that important? This church is 55 years old. We, I'm the eighth senior pastor, and I've been here the longest 17 years come this, uh, this September. And uh, I hope to God that I'm able to stay another, I don't know, 10 years, Lord willing, my wife and I, just continue to serve. We love being here. I mean, God forbid, if the elders wanted, they could fire me tomorrow. They'd have the mob to deal with, though, if they didn't have a biblical reason for that. Amen. <laughs> But what you need to know before you ever sign up to be a part of a local church, my friend, you need to ask one of the most important questions, who are the officers of this organization? Who are the, who, who's the, who are the tr board of trustees, board of elders, whatever they call it? Who can buy and sell land? Who can borrow money? Who are the officers? Why is that important? Because many times in the church, it's the pastor, his wife, his brother, his son, his best friend, and his dog, Pluto. And I'm sorry, that's just not very ethical. It's not very ethical. And if you're going to give your time, talent, and treasure, your tithes and offerings there, you want to make sure, listen, here at Trinity, I'm taking a moment in this because this is important. We are members of ECFA, Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability. It's a big, fancy organization that has the most strenuous measurements to determine whether they will certify a church or a nonprofit as being above board and blameless and will place their stamp of approval. Of the 700 plus churches in Lubbock, Texas, we are one of two. We were the first church, and my friend, Pastor Chris at eLife, is, was the second church. We're the only two churches in all of Lubbock that has this level of certification, which says what? We're doing things in a godly way above board and blameless, not only before the eyes of God, but before the eyes of man. And that's something you should be thankful and grateful for. Appoint elders. Don't elect elders. They're not elected. It's a calling. They're ultimately appointed by God to serve. And the final thing is, like I have to finish this message, the final pillar of faith is finish the work. Finally, they returned by ship to Antioch of Syria where their journey had begun and the believers there entrusted them to the grace of God. 
to do the work that they had now completed. Completing. There's nothing as fulfilling as finishing a job, finishing a task, finishing a project, completing the work. They say that who, they, they, they call William James the father of modern psychology, and he has a famous quote. I love it. He said, nothing is so fatiguing as the eternal hanging on of an uncompleted task. There's nothing that creates such anxiety and frustration in our life than something, a goal, a, some, a task, a project that's left open that we're, 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 we're procrastinating. You should start something and then finish it. And if you have so many things that you've started that you can't finish them all, then, then set aside all the unimportant ones and prioritize the top three and then focus your time, energy, and effort in completing those unfinished tasks. Jesus said, my food is to do what God wants. He is the one who sent me. I must finish the work he gave me. I must finish the work he gave me to do. Paul said in, in Acts 20, 24, but I don't care what happens to me as long as I finish the work. The Lord Jesus gave me to do. Jesus was talking about discipleship in Luke chapter 14. And he talked about uh, don't go out there and, and try to build something unless you have the wherewithal to complete it. He said this in verse 49. Otherwise, after laying the foundation and finding himself unable to finish the work, the onlookers should laugh at him. I think a lot in our culture today, in our country today, in the world are laughing at Christians because we're not even doing the Lord's work much less finishing the Lord's work. In Colossians 4.17, Paul gave a stern warning to a guy by the name of Archippus. He said, be sure to finish the work. Finish the work the Lord gave you. I hope to finish the work the Lord has given me in my marriage as a parent, as a father, as a husband, as a pastor. A work that started 17 years ago this September I hope that I can come to that point in time where I can say, you know what, my time is up. I finished the work. I passed the baton to the next generation of leaders and leadership. And, 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 and I can say before God, a job well done. I hope, I hope I'm able to do that. I hope you are able to finish strong the assignment, the work that God has given you to do. You know, the Indianapolis 500 became a world-famous race in the United States of America because of something that happened way back in 1912. True story. In 1912, in, in uh, the, uh, the second running at the Brickyard, there was the pace setter for that particular race. The driver was Ralph De Palma. And uh, he immediately took the lead as the pace car. 198 laps, 450 miles. He was towards the end of the race, and of course, he couldn't win because he was the pace setter. He technically, legally, against the rules, it would be against the rules. He was one mile away from the finish line and eight laps ahead of all the other cars, and something happened. His car broke down. They don't know exactly why. He started to leak oil, blew a piston in his Mercedes. But back then, those, those races, the early on, they had a, the mechanic actually rode in uh, the passenger seat, and the, and the passenger, the mechanic, was Rupert Jeffkins. The car stalled, so Rupert did something. He got out of the car, 1912, the beginning of the Indianapolis 500 race. He got out of the car, and stadium packed with fans, he began to push the car for one mile until it crossed the finish line. And something happened. 
They didn't come in first, they came in second. They were the second car to cross the finish line, but it didn't matter because they had already broken the rule that you can't push a car across the finish line, and as the pace setter, you couldn't win the race anyway. But that didn't matter to all the fans in the stadium. When they saw that type of courage and that type of perseverance and determination that they were going to complete the race, even if they had to push that car across the finish line, the people stood and began to give a standing ovation that went on for a long time. Why was that? That's actually what put the Indianapolis 500 race on the map in the United States of America and made it as popular as it is today. Why? Is there something about Americans that we can all agree upon? We love finishers. We love people that cross the finish line, that finish what they started, that go all the way to the end. And I'm here to tell you today in this message, maybe you're stranded on the, on the road of life. You're on the side of the road of life. We want you to know that as a church, if we have to get behind you and push you across that finish line, we're going to get you across that. If we have to drag you the final lap into the gates of glory, we're going to drag you in, hook or, or however it's going to take, we're going to get you across that finish line. Because God's not going to ever give up on you. So don't you, my friend, ever give up. Don't ever throw in the towel. I know the race gets weary. Sometimes you feel like quitting. But don't. Christ crossed his finish line. Paul crossed his. Peter crossed his. Mary crossed hers. You know, Phoebe crossed. All the people in the Bible crossed. And I'm here to tell you, you're going to cross yours. But be committed. Be committed. As Winston Churchill said, you know, success isn't final. Failure is not final. Success isn't forever. But it takes courage to complete. It takes courage to complete anything that you start. It takes courage to continue. And I pray that you have the courage to continue until you cross the finish line. The last two verses, it says, upon arriving in Antioch, they called the church together and reported everything that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there with the believers for a long time. I hope you stay here as a, as a believer. I hope you get plugged in, get connected, get involved. And I hope that together we stay here a long time making many disciples for Jesus Christ for years to come as Christ tarries. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Father, we humbly come before you today. And Lord, I thank you for the four pillars of faith. I thank you that we're in the business of making disciples. I thank you that we're going to encourage others to continue in the faith. I thank you, Heavenly Father, that we're going to raise up leaders. And I thank you that we're going to finish the work that you have given us individually, but as a church until that final day. Now with heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're here today and you don't know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, or you need to rededicate your life to Christ, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. The rest of us are going to pray this prayer. The Bible says if you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The Bible says if you'll confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer out loud with the rest of us. But say it with your own mouth and most importantly mean it from your own heart. Here we go. Dear God in heaven, I know I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. There's only one Savior. His name is Jesus. I call upon you, Jesus. I ask you now, come into my heart. Come into my life. Be my Lord and be my Savior. I turn from sin to the true and living God. 
I receive his love, his grace, and his forgiveness. Dear God in heaven, you're now my father, and I am your child. Fill me now with your Holy Spirit and give me strength to live for you and serve you all the days of my life, beginning today for the rest of eternity until I finish the work. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Can we thank the Lord together, church family?